Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, hey, thanks for joining us. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week, and show notes are found at 805connect.com. Why don't you subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming shows? Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. I want to thank them both for their support and encouragement. And I want to thank our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, who's run by my co-host, Patrick. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm oh, well. Patrick, I'd like you to meet, um, got a good friend, uh, John Greathouse. Well, wait till we're done and then maybe... <laughs> John, uh, I mean, the you write a lot, and you write at what, at johngreathouse.com? That is correct. But you're probably more known to th- th- hundreds, if not thousands of people. Maybe hundreds of thousands. Maybe. Oh, ho, ho, uh, as a professor of practice at Oh, the... I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> well, that was my early days in film. Oh, no. oh, goodness. Oh, that's another show. Yes, we'll we'll that do that. Johnny. But as a professor of practice at the Technology Management Program at yes. UCSB. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. What's a professor of practice? This is my understanding of it. It was originally a title they came up with for someone in... The I believe it was the Obama administration that they wanted to join the UCs and they needed they thought all the other titles were were weren't not up to snuff. You didn't want to call this person a lecturer or an adjunct professor right. or something else. Right. So anyway, right. they came right. up right. with right. this title, and then um, the good folks that I work with at UCSB thought it would be befitting for me because the idea is it's someone from the community who's right. not an academic, right? Who is in a practicing professional in some sense, and so I was the second, I think, or third in the UC system to get it. I was very pleased and flattered, and I think it's good for UCSB to have someone that's a professor of practice. And we now have another professor of practice at UCSB. I think we probably have twice as many as any other university um, since we have two. We have uh, Trip Hawkins, who is the founder of Electronic Arts, and he's an amazing entrepreneur and a great professor. Who's uh, also been on the show. Yeah. yeah. Guest. yeah. So we have, so you've had two professors of practice I've on had, the show. We have 100% wow. participation. Yeah, we had your whole department then. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you probably had two-thirds of all the UC professors of practice. Now, anyway, it's a good concept because, just one more word on it, yeah, sorry. Yeah. If you go back and look at what universities were 500, 600, 700 years ago, even in the Greek times, the idea was that people that had been accomplished in their own fields in the community would come into a classroom setting and share that information mm. with. The, the idea of professional teachers is much newer than we may think. It's you know this idea that I am going to dedicate my life to, quote, teaching, but I'm not going to have, quote, experience outside of the academic world to right. base that on is a relatively new concept. So we're actually going back to the original the original idea behind academics, which was somebody in their later stages of, of their career, would come back in and teach young people based on what they learned while they were out doing stuff. So you're the tip of the spear of this new way so. of thinking. And I'm curious, are you looking for more? Because it, I would think that the uh, accomplishment that 
you need to have to be a professor. I mean, to get that, we had um, we had Adam Benchia on the show mm-hmm. from uh, Cal Poly, mm-hmm. and I said, "Hey, professor, go, oh, hold on, I'm not a professor. I'm a <laughs> yeah. he's what do he say, lecturer." Yeah, that's the that's the technical term for somebody who's uh, the, the professorship is an appointment that is a very specific thing. And right. so and, having and, and this people at the university are very title conscious. So yeah. no I'm, doubt, before I was a quote professor of practice, I was. I was I would similarly correct people because I didn't want someone at the university thinking is he performing himself as a this professor. It matters guy. to them, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Cool. Again, as you said, they've spent their whole life dedicated yes. to being that. Right. Um, can you get tenure as a professor of practice? The way my uh, my understanding and the way my agreement is set up is it's a multi-year agreement. Half here's something else I love about it: half the money has to come from the community. So for your salary, yeah. Huh? Yeah, so I like, but for all the professors to practice. So part of the concept was if this person truly has, you know, demonstrated some expertise in some field, then the community should recognize that and help. And so the state says, I'll, we'll put in half the money, but someone else from the community has to raise their hand and say, yes, I'll put in the rest. Hmm. Um, and so anyway, I think that's a good filter. It, it's, it's, you know, who's going to know you better than the people that you interact with every oh, exactly. day? Exactly. Yeah. Wait, did they, so did they, chicken or the egg here, did they, did they say to you, and maybe I'm, I just missed this, but like, your did they offer you professor of practice, or was this contingent on the money? But did you create the concept of pre- no, not me personally. No, yeah. it was created. Um, I wish I knew the school. It was for somebody out of the Clinton administration that they wanted to bring into the university, and the I- original idea was we can't call them an adjunct, we can't call them a lecturer. What are we going to call them? And we can't call them a professor, right? Because they haven't spent forty years, you know. So that was the original concept for it. Um, and then I don't know where the idea of getting half the money from the community came into play, but it was—I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. It's probably because they didn't have the funding. Well, for that this too. Thing, right? That and too. It's like, well, <laughs> let's let's go into your network. Let, let's talk about your network for a second, John. To just uh, uh, brag a little bit about um, some of the things that you've done here that made you a professional. Hmm. Well, I'll brag about the the teams. So I've, I've been really fortunate here in Santa Barbara. We've I've been part of some pretty accomplished teams, and they both were the two founders of the principal companies that uh, did quite well were both professors at UC- from UCSB. Uh, one of them was Yulin Wang. He was a PhD um, a graduate in robotics, and we took his his idea along with another seven, seven – when I joined, I think there were seven or eight on engineers that had started a robotics center. It was a world-class robotics center at MIT. Um, Carnegie Mellon and UCSB were the three leading. Really? Yeah, we lost it. The Acting Robotics Center is gone now, essentially. Um, primarily because those folks that were part of Yulin's team um, spun off the university. I joined them, and fortuitously, in good timing, we took that technology and, and essentially were pioneers in the medical robotics industry. So we essentially created that, that industry. That was computer motion? Computer motion. We took it public in 97, and then we merged it with Intuitive Surgical it was a one-thirds, two-thirds merger of stock and, that, and stock and cash. And that company, as you know, is worth, I don't know, $18 billion now or something. They own, they own the market. Is this, when you say uh, medic, uh, robotic surgery, is this, are these like the, the, the devices that are being used to perform? Uh, like my mother had, uh, had a surgery done by a, by a robot. It was, it, was, it, was, it was Intuitive Surgical's Da Vinci robot, I can guarantee you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 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 Okay. It, um, one of the things, and this is the good and the bad of, of American intellectual property, good for us because we sold a company for a substantial amount of money, largely based on the intellectual property that we had. Probably bad for, um, you know, 
the, the greater community at large because there is one dominant player in that space. Mm-hmm. I went to Intuitive's um, offices. It was, it was a very surreal experience for me because I got to see, as far as my eye could see, across this huge cavernous uh, facility, all these robots being burned in. I got a little emotional. I was mm. with my son. <laughs> and I oh, said, wow. this was what we talked about in 93, 94. I had a, I had a PowerPoint was even not even <laughs> was relatively new. People to the point where people say, "How did you create that presentation?" <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, God. I created this software called PowerPoint. <laughs> would you like to buy it? Um, but anyway, we, it was so early days. We would show renderings of what these robots might look like, and, mm. and you know, we got the ninety percent of people scoffed at us, and the ten percent were interested, and, and the rest is history. But to see it in real life, like out of a science fiction movie, was pretty moving for me. Um, knowing that that was what we pitched and then seeing that, you know, certainly I didn't do it and, 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 and Yulin and his team didn't do it single-handedly, but we were contributors to making it happen. So then I walked over to the wall of patents and Intuitive has this, I, I don't know how, like it's hundreds of feet long. Hundreds this wall. of feet. It's full of patents. Oh my gosh. And when you go to the far left, which is the beginning of it, they're all our patents, all of the mm. computer motion patents. Uh, Yulin and Amante and, you know, anyway, all these people that I used to work with. And it was, that was very cool to see their names on these pivotal pioneering patents from the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. Really cool. In 2010, we had Yulin on the stage at TEDx American Riviera. All right. So if someone is you know interested in this topic, they yeah, can take go, a look at it. Take a look, look at his at talk. Him. And then we and then I was fortunate. I'll try to speed this up a little bit. I was fortunate to run into another professor, Klaus Schauser. He had two PhD students with him at the time. They wrote this 128 kilobyte applet that moved pixels and mouse clicks safely and securely over the internet. And we turned that into go to meeting, go to my PC, go to webinar, go to training. I led the sale of the company to Citrix. And they were true to their word, kept the comp- kept that company here in Santa Barbara and became mm-hmm. one of the biggest employers in the county, um, which I'm proud of. And I, I think all of us from the early days are proud of that. So that was a good run. Helped another little company here in town go public, um, took a couple years off, started teaching at UCSB, and then joined Rincon. How do you – just minute, before you get into Rincon, how you – are, you are working inside of rooms – uh, to 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 you know to build a company like Citrix uh, and and then and then is that it was that the company you sold? It was called Expert City. Expert we sold City. it to Citrix. Sold it to Citrix. And I'm thinking about that room mm-hmm. and that interact that day to day interaction of what you're working and what you're building versus the classroom. Mm. And I just can't imagine that your mind is getting the same level of is it is it how is your mind do that transition of of being in a classroom where there's you know, uh, thirty students that you're that you're explaining to them these these things that you did in the in the, in the you know in the real world of, of business and, and 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 making things actually happen. It seems like that's a very passive place versus what you were dealing with in in, in business. Am I wrong? Well, I have three hundred fifty students. Okay, so, so you're oh. a big lecture hall. Yeah. Okay. And we capped it at that. It would have we could have sure. we were in the second biggest room in university. We could have had more. Yeah. Um, you know, just the energy you get there. I don't make it a passive experience. I walk away down the aisle with my microphone, handheld microphone. I do like a Phil Donahue type approach where I, I have students talking to the mic and yeah. we make it engaging. But keep in mind, I'm not just teaching. So I, I teach, I write, um, you know, I write for, I've been writing for Forbes now for almost four years. Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, all the usual, um, publications and then so I, you've just forfeited sleep no <laughs> just, no no i have a virtuous circle i have three things that i focus on i have investing in startups through rincon ventures 
way of teaching um, uh, entrepreneurship, sales, leadership, ethics, things like that. And then I have uh, writing. And they all complement each other. Mm-hmm. So there's things that come up in the classroom, questions I get repeatedly. I'm like, that's a blog entry. I just uh, got to write them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I'll write the blog entry. And then, as you guys know, you don't really you don't really know something until you have to teach it. Yep. yep. You think right. you know it. <laughs> and then yep. somebody says, go out in front of 350 critically minded people right. and teach it. And then you're like, oh, shoot. Uh, okay. It just forces you to think it through, right? So writing is the same way. If I'm going to publish something on Forbes, it's like, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm thoughtful about it and, 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 and try to really weigh the arguments in, the, in, the, in what I'm about to say. Um, and, and the same with investing. So if I'm sitting down with an investor, I, mean, I don't know how many times this, this last quarter I just finished a class, I would say, oh, I just talked to someone yesterday about this. Mm-hmm. So it'd be something I was going to talk about anyway in the lecture. And then I would get, you know, get to that point and I go, oh, you know, I actually had a conversation with, with somebody earlier this week and we talked about this very issue. Or he was trying to leverage this strategic um, sales uh, strategy or whatever. So I think it brings a vibrancy. To, so to your point, I'm a curious thinker. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, just any entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like I'm never I, – I love to learn. Mm. That's what drove me to learn about medical robotics, what drove me to learn about online collaboration in the early days of the internet. Um, and so I feel like I'm really learning still and – not only am I learning, but I get the joy of also sharing that through my blog, uh, through through you know Forbes, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, and through my students. Hmm. So I'm lucky. It, it, to me, it's it's that old adage about it doesn't feel like work. Right. Hmm. You know, it really doesn't. As soon as it starts to feel like work, then I'm less interested. <laughs> right? no, well, I got exactly. a lot of other things I'd like to do. No, no, exactly. I'm. Uh, there's so many paths down that I want to go through. Have you Have you always liked to write? Yeah, yeah. No, when I go back and look at. Um, I was telling somebody this the other day. I had a fourth grade teacher who said, you're going to be a writer or a lawyer because you like to argue and you're <laughs> oh. a good writer. Yeah, and this is like a fourth grade teacher. So we all have had a teacher in our lives. And I didn't particularly even like that teacher. So this wasn't a teacher this I idolized. fourth grade? Or, yeah. It wasn't a teacher that I idolized or looked up to. I actually didn't even probably respect her as a fourth grader. But I do remember her saying that. And she said, you know, you are – She didn't, here's what she said. She said, you're not going to be a writer. You already are a writer. And I thought that was a powerful thing huh. to say to a little kid, 10 years old, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, try, I try to say that to, to young kids that I meet that I think are trying to do something that, that people have, have held them back on and said like, oh, well, when you get to be old enough, then then this will count. Right, right. Whereas, no, this counts at, this yep. counts at 10, 12, 13, yep. you know? Yep. I think we, you know, we should all do more of that. I, I do a lot of, I try not to be Machiavellian or... or overly calculating but i do label some of my students because if i believe it to be true um you already are an entrepreneur or you know you you know that kind of thing you don't have to wait for that to be activated right right right. nobody don't wait for permission or a gold star or anything you're already there (laughs) so if we talk to them in 10 years they'll say and i had a teacher who said you are an entrepreneur (laughs) and he was wrong (laughs) and i didn't particularly like him maybe not even respect him i might not have even (laughs) that's horrible to say that about a 10 year old but i think it was probably true Uh, what's your favorite part of writing so there's been a lot of research based on, um, on, on what we get out of accomplishing a task. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty well understood now that there are certain endorphins that fire when a task is completed. And there's mm. certain anxiety that's, that's either obvious or less uh, conscious or unconscious when, we're, when there, a task is unresolved. And a lot of this, – this isn't work I've done. This is a lot of other people. <laughs> Smart people have done this work. But I think it explains – I have some older friends that I cycle with, and it explains how they run their day. They have to-do lists. I mean, these guys, have, they don't have to do anything, right? They literally don't have to do anything. 
but they'll have to-do lists and they'll come and we'll be cycling and they'll say, I did the following today or yesterday and they'll proudly cite it. And the reason for that is probably societal, you know, work ethic, but all that. But, I, but there's also a brain thing going on where we, we like to check things off our list, either, mm. either physically or mentally. So for me, the, I wrote an article yesterday based on a conversation I had the day before and you know, you just get a rush. Even if the article, yeah. it's not that the article's great yeah. or that it's going to change your life or anyone else's, but you're like, you know what? I, I, I had the idea. I heard this conversation. I thought it was a powerful story. I've now got it out on paper, on a computer, um, and I'm going to publish it next week. That to me was a nice. It took me about an hour and twenty minutes. So that was a nice sense of accomplishment. It'll go out, get out there, and hopefully, it'll, it's a very positive article. It'll hopefully motivate, you know, one or two people to do something slightly different when they travel on business. That was sure. what the article was about. You know, but in the same time, you could have just been watching YouTube. No. <laughs> right. You could have uh, just, you right. just uh. been like you checking through your Netflix or maybe checking your Facebook. I mean, I you know. could have spent that entire hour and a half. My older friends do ask me about that. They're like, why do you, you know, I'm just like, that's how I'm wired and I'm yeah. having fun. Yeah. The moment it's not fun, I'll do something different. Just else. Well, you're a maker. Yeah. You know, I think of uh, I think when we think of makers, it's uh, the hobbyists, you mm-hmm. know, three D printers and that whole world. Yeah. those are the the maker movement. Right, right. Uh, and I disagree with that. I think when you create something, you're you can call yourself a maker, and creating something as story an article, right. you're a maker, and it's 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 so it's not that far removed from being an entrepreneur and creating something that didn't exist. You're taking an idea, you're connecting the dots on that idea. You have an audience in mind mm-hmm. who's going to consume that, and it's going to mm-hmm. add value to them. It's just mm-hmm. like creating a product. The product happens to be a thought that's packaged in a story. Yep. So I yep. I think of my food that way, and mm-hmm. we. Uh, um, uh, those of us, those of you who really want to do some deep Googling, go find the Private Chefs of Beverly Hills. Is that online? I don't know. But let's let our Googlers uh, go not. find that. <laughs> let's hope not. So, Patrick, uh, yeah. uh, gosh, this is five years ago now, I think. At least. At least. Oh, Jesus, like a lifetime. <laughs> At least a lifetime. I think it's lifetime. more than that, Mark. You think it? Yeah. We... Um, there was a show called The Private Chefs of Beverly Hills on the Food Network. Sure. And they did an episode at Lake Kachuma called Glamping, Glamorous Camping. Mm-hmm. And they have those yurts out there. And they, they, uh, the set decorators made them look like as if the Ritz-Carlton sure. had done these yurts. Yeah, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> why, wait, why was it? Why, you're both, leading, you're both t- like teasing out this idea that, one, you guys were there. Yes, and how? What was your role in this? In this, so we were um, the way the the setup is. We were seriously well-to-do entrepreneurs. Wait, you were playing the? the no, no. The- that's how they had the voiceover. It's like these guys get together once a year oh and they go God. on this retreat. The Uber rich. Yeah, oh the Uber God. rich. And, and they, this they're going to solve the problems of the world. And uh, in a year. They're so, they're so up there that they hire chefs from Beverly Hills to come and cook on the campfire. For I them. don't need you to name names. Just, I, just, just <laughs> confirm for me that this person exists in your life that said to you, could you please just come do this thing for me? It's going to be filmed and it's going to look really great. That is kind of how it happened. Is that what happened? Exactly I'm not, you don't have to name happened. who it is, but oh, it's just like there was yeah, one I, person in your yeah, life. Yes, I know exactly who it was and yeah, that's no, how it I went know. down. Yeah, and you yeah. showed up and you went, are you kidding me? If you watch the video, so they tried to make Mark the villain 
Oh, yes. awesome. If you watch the video, I'm constantly like the grandmother edging out of the frame. Like, <laughs> you know, like in the old like uh, Christmas video, like yes. there's the old woman that's yeah. sort of like, don't take my picture. Like yeah. that was me. Yeah. Sorry about that. Well, like why do we bring this guy if he doesn't want to be filmed? And it's like, <laughs> he didn't know. <laughs> this isn't what he signed up for. My kids were like, we hardly see you. And I'm like, yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah. yeah. And because I'm a chef, I right. would go get in their grill. Oh, no. Like, uh, oh, are you doing that? Was, well, let's make a fire. Neither one of the chefs knew how to make a fire. Wait, <laughs> so, so this well, is one a total... of them was an actress. She wasn't a chef. Yeah. So this oh, is. A did total... I just tell us? No, no, did no. Did I just yeah, give a secret yeah, away? No, this was, was a farce, right? This is a complete oh, farce. Oh no! The, one of the scenes was um, okay. You're going to go fishing now, and you're going to catch lunch. That was my scene. That was that your... was the one on camera moment I had. Oh my god! They gosh. gave me a line, and I was yeah. supposed to say something, and they wanted me to be a jerk about it. Which... Okay. Because they need that's that's what plays right. Well, conflict. These, conflict. These rich guys are yeah. Yeah. So supposedly I went down to go fishing in Lake Kachuma and I came back with some fish and I said, "Put this in the meal," like you know, messing them completely up. Like, oh my god, we weren't oh, ready to cook yeah, fish. Right. So they hand me some whole fish they bought from Whole Foods. Rainbow trout. Come on. Oh yeah. 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 They a, unwrap like on it. A line? They unwrap it. They try to put it on the line. As I recall, we didn't couldn't get it on the line, or I don't yeah. remember. But yeah. anyway, I felt like an idiot. But, but then I. <laughs> I am the one. So that. So then I walk it over to the chefs and say, and they go, what kind of fish is that? And I go, you're a chef? Oh, what? my God. And I couldn't cuss, but what the F, you right, know? Right, right. Yeah. It's like, this is a rainbow trout. Oh, okay. And it was like. Okay, wait, wait. I want to know. Did you guys have makeup on? No. Did they make I don't think you? they make. No, no, no. We, no. There was no no, no hair okay. and makeup on it that. It was it was a professional. It was professionally done. It was done. really yeah. well done. Well, that's what I'm wondering. But like they the didn't level they of, didn't put makeup on. Oh, that's, yeah. There were there were three of these scenarios in the hour long show. Oh, the others were worse. Oh my god! There was the uh, oh, birthday party god. for dogs. Oh my god! And it was all catered. Sure. So the private yeah. chefs had to come and cater this birthday party for right. the dogs. Right. And I forget what the other one was, but uh, you know, I'm I'm at I I know that you guys are 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 uh, portraying this as as a you know a lark or whatever. But um, I was traveling the other day and I bumped into a, a, a woman I know, and she was uh, taking her boss's dog on a plane to oh. to to Portland to drop off with. Uh, t- with somebody to take care of the dog while she traveled for the weekend. For the weekend. So yeah, I'm not, I don't <sighs> dispute that there there are a lot of rich douchebags. Yeah, they just yeah. didn't cast any in our. Okay. Era. Yeah. 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 We yeah. had we had fun and they we did the after they left we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Like That's, after the shoot was over, we spent the night and, and yeah. sat around yeah, the campfire. If I'm not mistaken, you brought growlers. Yeah, I had all kinds of beer. And, beer and yeah. we sat around. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you guys got your blue collar on. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We <laughs> did. We filmed this part. Yeah. So there I was chasing the pig. Oh, wait. Oh, they're coming back? Okay. <clears throat> uh, the hog got loose. <laughs> yeah. So that was, uh, <clears throat> that was fun. I, w- I want to get back to the teaching part because I, I actually like to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't do it because I can't do the same thing over and over right. again. Mm. I have a really difficult time with that. Yep. I'm better as a coach. Yep. Uh, so I can, I coach a lot. I do a lot of that. But you said that you rattled off the things that you do, and you said the word ethics. I'd like to give me the three minutes on why that's important in an entrepreneurship program. Well, I stress, I stress a quality of character all the time, um, and I think I've written about it. I think it's um, 
it's very self-serving, but in a but that but in a good way. So if you're a good person, if you're honest, if you're ethical, if you treat people right, you are going to be more successful. It's a it's a competitive advantage. the The problem we deal with as you know people teaching entrepreneurship is is or just mentors in general is battling the Hollywood stereotype. You know, for for a good movie, you got to have an evil villain, and it's yeah. often a business person, mm-hmm. and the portrayal is. Fuck it. Screw everybody. Excuse me. That's uh, all right. Screw everybody <laughs> no <one's> once. Listening. <laughs> screw everybody once, and you'll make a billion dollars, and 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 have someone f- uh, fly you their, your dog to them. You know, it's yeah. like it's just that horrible caricature. And I'm not saying there aren't ass wipes out there. There are, but I think it's much easier. Like, look at my ventures. If I if I were to go, if I were to put a, a shingle out for a venture right now, I have a lot of people that would be willing to work with me. Quite happily, because sure. if you look at what we did at Expert City, we sold the business, we f- we fully vested, ex- we s- accelerated everybody's options, and and at, at our expense, at the expense of the top leadership, um, and that made a lot of people a lot of money. And we could have very easily had. I guess the norm is you don't do that. You right. say, hey, you still right. got options, and they're vesting. Get good luck. Um, but that was something we thought was important. We felt like, look, we're selling this company for hundreds of millions of dollars, and the people that helped us build it are walking the halls every day, and they should share in it. So. Again, it's it's a bit self-serving in the sense that um, I think you're doing the right thing, but by doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing by yourself uh, in your long-term career. Yeah, you're planting you're planting your future partners. You're, yep. You're, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And in fact, so think about it. Appfolio was a company that came out of Citrix. I, they they asked me to be an early investor. Logic Monitor asked me to be an early investor. Mm-hmm. Rightscale asked me to be an early investor. If I had screwed those people, and I made money yeah. on those deals, yeah. uh, not Logic, Logic Monitor, I actually did not invest in, but. Um, because I was already a venture partner. Um, but anyway, this, the opportunity was there. And if I had, and Eucalyptus was what I did invest in, and we did well there, uh, it, it, those opportunities wouldn't have been there if, if, if I had not treated people right. You'd be um, the lonely guy in the hill in the house. It's yeah, also a small exactly. town. Yeah. Too, it is right. a small town. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't tell my students, hey, it, you know, act like you're ethical or, you know, just be ethical. <laughs> You know, oh, just be act ethical. like you're ethical. You know, don't don't say, well, if I do this ethically, then it'll help me. Like, just just do the right thing all the time. So being ethical is not a, a strategy. It's not no. a gaming strategy. But where I started, where I start with the kids is, is I say, how many people in here think they're you know honest? And of course, everybody raises their hand. And then I say, how many of you think you know you're ethical? And then how many of you think ethics are situational, contextual? And nobody, no, no, my ethics are my ethics. And then I I go over some well documented um, case studies. There's one that I love, and I, I won't, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but I'll just, I'll give you a quick overview. It's basically a brilliant study that somebody did where they had seminary students. So you start out already with somebody who mm. sort of raised their hand and said, I'm going to be an honest, ethical person. I want to be, um, and, and I want to be empathetic and helpful and all that. And then they have them, um, they, they say, here's what you're going to do, Mark. You, we need you to go down the street to this nonprofit, and we need you to talk about the Good Samaritan parable, and just you know. And so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna remind you about it. So I'll sit here and go and remember the Good Samaritan crosses this traveler, and you know the traveler has been beaten and robbed, and, and and has no money, and the Good Samaritan goes to an inn and says, "You better take care of this person. I'm going to be back, and if you haven't taken care of him, blah blah blah." Um, that's the parable, and then they and for half the people they go, "Oh, wait a minute, you're late. You got to go. You got to you got to hurry up." And so you go, okay. So you go out the door, and they have you walk about seven or eight blocks. And in between, they put a person who needs oh, help. Oh. The majority of the, of the seminary students walk right by. Ooh. It's contextual. It's like, oh. I have to get to, to talk about being a good Samaritan, right? It's, that, it's sort of that thing we talked about before, this desire to com- accomplish tasks. 
Now, not all of them do, thank goodness, right? It's not like every single one of them. But the majority of them step right over that person and walk on and do their talk. The ones that they say, oh, Mark, uh, do you have any questions? Okay, good. You know, you, you've got time. Uh, in fact, you might, you're probably going to get there early, but why don't you go ahead and go and just get set up? And those people stop. Hmm. The majority of those people will say, whoa, there's somebody hurt. There's somebody who needs help. And they, they do what you would hope everybody right. would do. Right. And it's all because of that context, the context put around that. Either you're in a hurry, you've got to get there, hurry up, Mark, you don't want to be late. Or, hey, you've got time, you know, just, just, just get there when you, do, when you can. Does that, so do you, do you also then translate that, that that has something to do with how we perceive our own experiences? Of course. That, yeah. that if we feel, if we put upon the, the rush on ourselves, then we're going to... Well, I think it's easy to rationalize why you didn't help that person. Uh, oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. Or why you didn't realize they were in such need. Because your brain is, 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 is maximizing get there on time. That's the hierarchy of importance yeah. in yeah. your... Yeah, yeah. So I start with that basis. And then, the, and of course, there's the parable of the Sadhu, the guy that's on the mountain. It's a Harvard case study. There's a holy man in India who's, who's on a mountain, basically naked, looks like he's going to die of exposure. And it's a true story. And this whole group of international people walk right by him and, and let him perish. Mm. The American, or assume, they have to assume that he perished. There's an American that's there, and he later wrote, it, it's, you know, just got tons of exposure probably 15 years ago. Um, about his how guilty he felt Mm. but there's so many facets to that story because then you have people that understand some of the Indian religions say you know that's so um, that's so western in the in your thought process that you have to help not just that but that that some that some holy men do that to die who are you to interfere in their you know so it's very complex but from a student standpoint, it's a good exercise to go through because then they sit back and they go, well, ethics really are somewhat contextual, and I, maybe I'm not quite as ethical as I thought I was. Mm-hmm. And, and so then I take them to, okay, listen, since we know that that's the case now, we all kind of agree, what we, the way you control or monitor or maintain ethics in an organization is make sure everyone understands your moral code, and when you're not standing there in the room being – able to tell them what to do next they just think about their moral code as a company and say i know what to do here i know what our culture is i know what our code is i know i don't have to debate it the default so right this is such an important thing and i'm glad our listeners getting to hear this because we we talk about we've we've talked about startups entrepreneurs we've had i mean this is a probably one of the larger themes that we talk about on the show this idea, though, of creating a corporate culture, and is that, um, is that organic or no. is that explicit that it, comes from the founders? Okay, so let me rephrase my, my quick note. It can be organic. And I think, I think to some extent it's like throwing darts in a dark room. You might hit a bullseye. But you don't know it. But you, you don't know it. You might hit the wall. You might hit somebody in the eye. <laughs> I don't think you can – I don't think it's wise to allow your culture to be uncurated. I mean, the three of us in this room, let's say we get to know each other really well. We have 20 years of experience together. We probably don't need to spend a lot of time curating our culture, right? Because we just know each other. And, and that's why, we, why, why, we that's why we're together, yeah, right? Right, right? But as soon right. as I bring in, as soon as we bring in a fourth person, a fifth person, a sixth person, a ninth person, a 15th yeah. person, a yeah. 50th person, if we're not mindful about curating the culture, it's probably not going to be what we want it to be. Right. Um, and I think that the stuff that I've been thinking a lot about lately, I think... I think that's a risk in a, in, a, in a startup where the founders are so focused on driving revenue and all the things mm-hmm. they should be focused on. It's very easy to lapse on the idea of curating your culture. And I was the biggest victim or biggest um, perpetrator of it. 
we would of lapsing of lapsing because you're so busy. Think about mm-hmm. the, the the contextual um, uh, issue we just talked about, where the guy thinks he's going to be late for a talk. If I feel like I've got to raise money or I've got to generate revenue, it's easy to let curating my culture fall to the bottom of my list. And I'll tell you how it manifests itself uh, in terms of monthly meetings. I think, you know, that's something I think is very important when you have between, I don't know, 50 and 200 people. You should, uh, 200 might be extreme, but 150 to 150 for sure. You should be meeting monthly at some level. Town hall. Just a town hall. It doesn't have to be a two-hour exercise. It can be quick. And it was so easy for me to postpone those. It was so easy for me to say, not again. We just had one of these. Like, you know, this, I'm getting nothing out of this. No, you're not getting anything out of it. But, but everyone else is. Right. So you right. need to do right. it, right? Uh, we would have that as a, as a group. We would sort of all kind of go, really, again? Like, wow, we just did this. We feel like, you know, are we doing these too often? And, and when we would ask a place, they'd say, no, no, no. We want, like, once a month is not too often. So... These words, I, I think we have a title of our show, by the way. Um, <laughs> What's a month is not too often? <laughs> <laughs> this is not a marital show. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it home for me. No problem. Uh, it, the idea, I think about curation a lot. Oh, yeah. yep. um, as a Tedster, yep. you know, I'm, I curate the audience. I curate the stage. I curate the, my partners. Like, who do I want to partner with? Right. I curate, heck, I curate the goodie bag. You know, because everything contributes to the user experience. And yep. in this case, the employee experience. What's it like to work here? Mm-hmm. And and I put curation at the very top of the list because all the other good things happen when you've paid attention to the little things. Mm-hmm. And th- the way you phrase that um, is is exquisite, where it's, a, it's an active thing. You curate. You do something. You curate your culture. So that presumes that I have a list of all the things that the curate, that culture represents, and there are the things that are in and the things that are out. Right. And you've done that. Either you sat around and explicitly did it uh, as a team, or as soon as you saw something that was out, you said, okay, we're going to eject that. Mm-hmm. That, that thing is, is not acceptable. But, but let me just interrupt you for, real quickly. Not, we, yes, everything you said is true, but we try to not do it just verbally with words. We try to do it we try to curate it through our actions. So, for instance, let's say, and this is a real example, let's say the accounting department was walking b- down the hall um, 6.30, 7 o'clock on a Friday, and they see a lot of commotion and activity in the marketing department, and a little bit of frenzy and a little bit of maybe pa- you know, panic. Um, somebody from the accounting department says, hey, what's going on? And they say, oh, we got a trade show, and we're shipping tonight, and, you know, whatever, right? we got to get this stuff mailed. And that person goes back to the accounting department and says, hey, come on, let's go down to the marketing department and help them get this done. When we found out that that happened, we gave everyone in the accounting department um, and the marketing department, but the accounting department, uh, a, I think it was like an Amex, 100 bucks or something, I don't remember, like a gift card. Um, the money wasn't as important as having them stand up in front of the, the whole team, the whole company, and say, here's what happened. This is exactly what we, you know, we, we, we used to call it... Um, you know, feeding each other. Like we want, we want everyone else to feed each other. If we feed each other, we're never going to go hungry. Sure. And then we thought that was a great example of, of one department feeding another. It would have been so easy for that person, six thirty, seven o'clock on a Friday, to be like, "What? Have fun. See ya." You know, right. like I'm going right. to go get right. a beer. But for them to say, "No, it's important that they get to the straight show on time and that all this stuff gets packed up and let's help them." Do you think that that came though through the when you, the culture of of your hiring and the culture of your of partnering of saying like. Like when you go out and find me somebody, make sure that they fit within. Yep. Yeah. No, the hiring is is the 
is the, the key. I mean, it really is the key. I guess laying the foundation is the first thing you do. The analogy I use for hiring is if, if, we, have a, if we have a Dixie cup of water and I put a drop of, of something nasty in it, you're not going to be able to drink it. It's just going to just— A, a drop gonna, is enough. Yes. And so when you have a company of you know, 15, 20, 25 people, one bad hire is like a drop of, of crap in a little cup. Look, you get to be 200 people, 300 people. You can survive a couple bad apples, and you get them out of your company, and, and they move on. But in the early stages, you can't afford a bad apple. Mm. Um, they will spoil the whole bunch. Uh, and so you have to move quickly, and if it happens. Um, and, but more importantly, you want to screen carefully to make sure that you're not optimizing on just getting somebody in the door because you need them. And you've got to optimize on, on culture. So the way you do that is... Um, you have a lot of people that are outside of their department. Talk to them. It's not efficient. Mm. Uh, you probably want to have the CEO talk to everyone of the first until your company is about 75 people or 100 people even. Just at least talk to them and screen them and give that, and give that CEO the veto. And he or she should oh. use it once or twice a year. Like they shouldn't just go be like, no, Mark, bring me another one. But it should be, listen, you know, Mark, listen, I know you need this person. I know you feel good about this person. I, I've got to say I'm not sure. That's a lot of trust in your own self, though. Like, that's a lot of confidence in your own as the CEO or as the, as the person who's running the business. Um, well, I think it is, and I don't think you play that card lightly because then you're going to demoralize your troops. Right? They're right, gonna be like, right. I, I, I brought this person. And, and now were, you have a mercurial boss. Right. I have right. some arbitrary no, and I don't understand why. I'm going to go back to— But you're right. It is a lot of power. You have to be careful how you wield it. Hmm. Uh, that was the, um, hey, you know, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> yeah. Right, it's like you've yeah. got the guy. You know he's the right guy, and his whole the whole team, the hiring team, is standing behind, reading, trying to read whatever they can off your face. And we learned this trick, by the way. And I would just say, you know, Bob, this this is the last meeting, and uh, everybody loves you, and I, and you just kind of play that all of it. He says, I'm not feeling it. Yeah, and that is the last test, because that's the test of ego strength, for that person to say. You, well, I guess I guess you would know you're the boss. Yeah, good day. And, yeah, and I'm sorry <laughs> to waste your time. Right, and right. they get up and leave, right. or they say, "Have have you not been listening for the last 45 minutes right. when I've been telling you how fantastic I am?" Right. And I'm right. make or how much value I can add? All, or, all of that. Yeah. Um, I want to go back. I'm going to stay on culture for a second sure. because we, I've grappled with this as well, and I've always thought it was kind of uh, the the idea of vision and mission and then values as they are printed on a gold plaque. Yeah, I hate that. Uh, I always <laughs> hated it. No, I totally agree with you. And and I... Uh, it's like I always felt like if I took the coffee cup with the mission statement and put my hand over it and said, okay, what is the mission statement? Like 90% of the employees in America would be like, uh, have no can clue. you move your hand? Right. And we went into an offsite at Wayfront. You remember Wayfront mm -hmm. back in the day? Sure. And... Uh, and I'm the anarchist in in that room, going, "This is bullshit. Why are we here? What are we going to get done?" And mm -hmm. and he was a, a, a army guy, uh -huh. and he was really really good. Uh, probably the most effective consultant. I'm still friends with him mm. uh, that I ever ever worked with. And he said, "We have to have rules of engagement. We have to have some mm -hmm. way that we're going to work together as a team. Mm -hmm. First, it's going to start with those of us in this room, and by extension, out to your departments, mm -hmm. and by extension, that's how the company is going to be. Right. And I said, "What? We, I don't know who it was, but we instead of calling it any of those lame things, we called it observable behaviors. Mm. 
And we said as, as the executives, we want to be able to see the values in action. To, to your point, if one of the values is act like a team, mm-hmm. when you see that happen, you recognize it. Mm-hmm. And we took it one step further and actually made it part of the review process mm. so that you know, I could go and say, God, you, you know, I saw you what you picked up some trash. You act mm, like you're an like owner it. in the company. Like and, and so that that notion of, oh, wait, now he liked it. So I'm going to show up in a Forbes article now <laughs> uh, with no attribution. Yeah, you have to be fine. careful when talking to people who have an outlet for, for yeah, publication. I'll but take the, full credit for that. Idea. Please do. <laughs> but but the, uh, I was if, thinking the other day. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of, of being able to see it. So I was yeah, curious. I like that a lot. How did you what did you find was an effective way to communicate? Well, that's what culture? we would do. That's what the mostly it was these team meetings, the big company meetings. We would always and we would ask her. We'd sit around the table. We'd say, okay, what's a good example? Like I told you about the accounting department. We would try to find something like that every time. Yeah. It was hard. Sometimes it was hard. But, yeah. um, but you know, you, the company gets big enough and, and you get enough executives, you can usually do it. But that's the main way we would do it was have somebody come to the front. We'd explain what they did. Everybody would applaud them. We'd give them a gift card. And we had this award. So we had a big bell, try to make this quick. We had a big bell that we would ring whenever there was an accomplishment, and that's become common. I got a bunch of the startups I'm investors didn't have that bell now. It's kind of funny. Um, but what we did is we took it one step further. We we created this bell ringer reward. We bought this cheesy little, I don't know, it was just this horrible like. You're breaking somebody's heart right now because they're like, I have that on my desk. I show it to everybody who walks in. <laughs> That's, that's the core. <laughs> My whole self-worth. Is I won that award. <laughs> I thought it was cool. No, but we, I, I guess we purposely didn't want to make it like this, you know, like incredibly ornate trophy or something. So we bought this this little thing that had a bell on it, and it said the bell award. And we and the person went, keep it on their desk for a month. Oh, okay. And people did take great pride in it, and they should have, you know, because we, we felt like that was a great recognition for the company. And so the we had the big bell that would announce, like, when we – you know, somebody did something amazing, and, and we tried to make it not just salespeople. But right, the bell ringer right. award was really, if I think about it in the way you're talking about it, it was more of the culture award. It was more of yeah. here, yeah. you know, I'm living the culture that we all talk yeah. about, and everybody would know what that person had done for that month. Yeah. And yeah. So anyway, the bell ringer award was was a good way for us to to do it. And believe me, those people were really proud of it. I mean, uh, absolutely. And and the the takeaway is that, I mean, as you said in the beginning, the reason. You know, you said ethics was self-serving, and yeah, it is self-serving. It's going to make a better, a better employee experience. They're going to be better to the customers. I mean, everything is better as a result. Yep. And we, we tend to, we had a, a couple of young ladies on a show that uh, had just won their first fast pitch competition, mm-hmm. and it's all about the idea. They're not. They're so far mm-hmm. removed from thinking about the company and the culture, and yet. All of those human emotions and human feelings, the more in touch with them that we are, I think, the better we end up as Absolutely. entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Yeah. On uh, Let me, can, can I talk about one more thing on culture? Please. That might be helpful to people sure. listening. So you talked about how do you kind of figure it out or what, you know, how do you baseline it? Um, I'm going to brag about a friend you might know. Uh, Sean Thompson, because he's here in Santa Barbara. Sean's been on the show. Okay, great. So Sean does a thing where, I don't know how much of this you guys talked about, but he goes into companies, and he'll help them ferret out what their code code is. Your life code. And we feel like, I've been talking to Sean a lot about this lately, we feel like the code is really a, the foundation of your culture. And so you can you can you can be proactive and talk about what you code what your code is now and what you want it to be, and hopefully those things aren't that different. 
Um, but it could be. If you're a bigger company that's been around for a while, what you want your code to be may not be what your code is today. Um, so for anyone that's, um, I'll put a plug in for Sean, anyone that wants to go through that process, uh, Sean Thompson is a world champion surfer. Created, He's amazing. He created the surf industry, not, not single-handedly, but he and, and MR and, and Robert Bartholomew and a few other people in the 70s created the professional surfing yep. circuit. Yep. Um, and he's he's now taken all that experience and learnings, and he'll sit down with companies big and small. I mean, does he's with huge companies and, and companies with a hundred people, and he'll help he'll he'll do it in a variety of ways. So he's basically asking employees, "What is our what is our code? What is our code here in this company?" And then that's the foundation upon which a culture is built. I will put a link in the show notes so people can go back and listen to that episode. Oh, good. Because what was it was interesting is, as you've already found, we don't know where the show's going to go when we start. <laughs> yeah. Just we go on a journey and and ends up. Well, that's why it's called conversations, right? Ex- it's not called eight hundred five scripts. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. There's okay, our. Okay, Mark. What do I say that's next? Our, I, that's that's our T-shirt. <laughs> what's the next what's, plug you uh, want? Yeah. And at the end, he. He thanked me, said, you helped me connect some dots that mm-hmm. I had never connected yeah, he's before. he's a kind person. He's yes. wonderful. We've also had him on the TEDx stage. Oh, nice. Uh, as well. Yep. He told the story Perfect. was soon after uh, his son yep. had passed, yep. and, which yep. is a, one of those defining moments. Yep. I, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask was the, the third passion was around investing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just uh, – people can go to Rincon Ventures and, and learn about what it is that you do. But is your focus – solely on local companies? No. So so Rincon is focused primarily California companies. We have one in New York, one in Pittsburgh slash Boston, one in Atlanta, but most of our companies are they're in Northern California, LA, and now a couple in San Diego. But they're very focused in the sense of the sectors. Um, it's, it's B2B SaaS, so B2B software as a service. Think about go to a meeting, go to my PC. Mm-hmm. Those are things that I know a little bit about. I'm the operator in the in the partnership. My partner is more of the traditional um, banker slash venture capitalist, although he's he's an entrepreneur in his own right. But um, I bring more of the operational experience to the table, and it, it um, it's really been quite an adventure. We're we're early stage for a venture capitalist, which is confusing because it doesn't mean we fund your idea. We'll we'll fund a business. Um, but we're still very early stage. We're typically the first inst- institutional money in, but there's already been angel money and friends and family and, and, and other money. We want to see recurring revenue. We don't want to, again, fund an idea. Um, had great, great um, – we're in our third fund. Going to do a fourth fund probably next year. Um, we've had a, a great run at it, and I think we've helped create some really interesting companies. And because we come in so early, we truly take a partnership approach. Mm-hmm. We need other venture capitalists in the later stages to come in that are more growth-oriented to take the company sort of t- to that level. And they often, I think just by their nature, there's less of a partnership in mind. It's more of traditional venture capital. But early stage, we think being a partner with the founders is key. You know, really sitting there as if you're on their management team really matters. How do you, how do you vet those founders? We spend a lot of time with them, and we and, and what's interesting is they always could get a better deal from a financial standpoint. We never pay the most, and, and we make that clear in the first conversations. Like, listen, if you want to maximize the valuation of your term sheet, I'm not going to do it. I'm sure you could go get somebody from Northern California to pay you to, to pay more for your company. But if you're looking for a partnership and you're looking for somebody that's, that could help you over the next you know three to five, seven years – then I'm probably up for that. And that's our litmus test. Mm. You know, and we'll have, it's typically younger entrepreneurs that haven't 
raised money before. They mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. gets a con job or something. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. well, you're trying to get my business at a lower price. Like, not really. I'm just trying to make sure that we're going to be aligned as, as partners. What I find is, and we do get first-time founders. I just did two deals this summer that were both first-time founders. Um, but they are, you know, they're younger guys, but they're not young. They're not 20, 22-year-old um, individuals. Um, I found that people that have raised money before sort of understand the good and the bad of venture capital are attracted to our model because they, all they have to do is talk to some of the companies we've invested in and sure, see that it's not sure. just me saying it. Right. It is the way we run our, our, right. our business. Um, and quite frankly, I'd rather them go get more. I'd rather them go get a higher valuation for their company if that's really what they want because that tells me a lot about what that partnership right. would have been like right. once we got right. involved. Uh, when you, I just crossed my mind as you're talking to some of the ones that you've rejected, do you say, maybe you ought to take my class? No. <laughs> I'm never that presumptuous. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, my class is really for, it's for that stage before. It, you know, yeah. it's really for the, yeah. the, like you said, somebody with a good idea, um, a lot of passion, a lot of energy, but they don't really know how to pull a company together. So, yeah, I'm not typically having the same conversations with my entrepreneurs as I am with my students. So typically, there's a little bit of the Venn diagram there, but most, mostly no. John, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. This is, um, it, it just adds to... A random to walk, I like it. <laughs> the, 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 it adds to this body of content. We're well, well over 120 episodes now. Excellent. And a lot, we've, we, you know, me, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I just love, it's more like a serial maker, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm like, I just like making things. I yep. just, I'm insatiable about that. And I've found, I love talking to other makers and figuring out where the commonalities are in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so thank you so much. This is no, you're great. welcome. And Thanks a, for the opportunity. That's a good one. And uh, I, if, if you, w- without uh, objection, Your Honor, uh, <laughs> I would like to go with um, Curating Your Corporate Culture as a title. Oh, as the like title? That? Curating Corporate Culture? What do, you, do you like that? That's three yeah. C's. It's, it's got an alliteration. Yeah. It's got to work. We love the alliterations. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of the alphabet. Yeah. And uh, so thank you very much, John. What, so what I'll do is uh, Rincon Ventures. People can find that easily. Sure. Um, I Googled your name. How'd you say it just now? Rincon Ventures. Is that right? With the D in it? Rind, well, Rindcon? he's from California. Rindcon? Did I say that? You just said Rindcon. No, oh. but I hear that in California. That's a California thing. It is go, it? East Coast people pronounce it Rincon. So. Oh, yeah. with an E. It is not Rincon. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. at least That's wrong, Johnny so. Rincon. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much for being on the show. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcast casting partner <laughs> i want to say pod string partner yeah, our podcasting partner yeah. pull string press for this great place to have these fascinating conversations if you're interested in uh, partnering with our podcast drop us a note to partner at 805connect.com now uh, patrick yes. one of uh one of john's students is probably listened to this <laughs> thinking they can get extra credit uh, how could they actually get extra credit oh uh well you should subscribe to the show listen to all the other episodes we have uh, many of the people that John mentioned on the show uh, have been uh, have have a much more extended interview. Uh, Trip Hopkins is in there, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Sean Thompson as well. And those those shows are two of my. If I had to say to somebody, "Hey, these are the two shows you you need to listen to," uh, and I would probably add this. But one now you have it. three. No, I have three. <laughs> Do you know Stephen Dunier? Yes. So Stephen is a, he's a professor. He's a professor. Yeah. Is he a professor of practice no, or just a it's professor? Just Trip and I at this point, but. 
Got it. So we also had Stephen on the show. Yeah. And talking about very interesting uh, cognitive ease and cognitive yeah. People love, strength. They students love, love his class. So oh, you my guys are gosh. looking for a good class. Yeah, that is a good one. So thank you. Uh, if you've got uh, questions for us or you have an idea for a guest, that's, everything comes from the mail uh, from you folks. Thank you so much for those ideas. Drop me a note at mark at 805connect.com. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.